And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people for the remission of their sins. Well, even the secular historians say that he was a sensation. And here I don't mean Jesus. In fact, Jesus was one of many pilgrims who ventured into the Jordan Valley to see the prophet of the highest. And talk about spectacles. This guy had the wild-eyed look of a psychic, dressed in a camel's hair tunic and dining on grasshoppers and wild honey. He tilted at the Jewish government and called people to bewail their wicked ways. He probably rated high in the entertainment section as a local novelty. And crowds flocked to the Jordan River to witness the bizarre drama of this guy submerging his converts in the swiftly flowing water. Some undoubtedly found the display to be an interesting diversion. But there were also those who were alarmed by the strange events in the wilderness. Members of the religious establishment in particular were unsettled by the baptizer's activities. They seemed to get upset when called a brood of vipers. And they were offended by the apparent slight to their family pedigree, raising up stones from Abraham indeed. But more ominous to them was the possibility that this charismatic figure could fan the embers of Jewish revolt and arouse the military attention of their Roman overlords. And so one can see how John the Baptist became a polarizing figure. How, in fact, his very appearance and behavior could be a source of hope for some while being a threat to others. Scripture elsewhere gives us more angles on who he was. St. Mark claims that he was the long-awaited prophet Elijah. Who would have guessed this just by watching his actions and hearing his ravings? And yet it was all just preliminary to the controversy that came to be associated with one of the individuals who would appear before him in, in order to undergo his baptism. And so it is that the figure of John the Baptist occupies a central place in the gospel story. He is the bridge that connects the narrative of God's work in the Old Testament with the new thing God was about to do in the world through his Son. In fact, from the earliest decades of the church's daily worship, the canticle called the Song of Zechariah, or the Benedictus, as it is better known, was the canticle that followed the morning's second Bible reading. It expresses the conviction that, as St. Augustine said, novum testamentum in vetera latet, vetus testamentum in novo patet. The New Testament is in the old concealed. The Old Testament is in the new revealed. Well, the first thing to say about Zechariah's song is that it proclaims a vision of a God who has never forgotten his people, to perform the mercy promised to our forefathers and to remember his holy covenant. 
The pious Jews who lived in the first century were, on the whole, a confused and dispirited lot. Having endured nearly 700 years as a despised minority with nationalistic longings under a succession of tyrannous regimes, there were many who believed that God had given up on his chosen ones. Perhaps some even thought that he had forgotten them. Even the most devout believer can have misgivings. Did you know that the question, how long, occurs in the Psalter nearly 20 times? How long? How many times has that question passed our lips as we waited for the surgeon's report, as we reached our wit's end with a rebellious teen or an unyielding parent? as we struggled to find the energy to finish an assignment. We mustn't be overly dramatic here, for most of us do not know the desolation of a race of people facing extermination. Nevertheless, it is possible to become so overwhelmed by the dire nature of our circumstances, or to become so oppressed by a sense of hopelessness at the world's intractable problems that we fall into doubt denial, and even despair. You all know that the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre was an atheist, but he found it distressing that God did not exist because it left him stranded without a home or a goal to strive for. And in striking words, he lamented, God is silent, and that I cannot possibly deny. Everything in me calls for God and that I cannot forget. But into the dark pessimism of Sartre's existential angst, and into the circumstances that fray our own humanity, Zechariah breaks forth with luminous words. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a mighty salvation for us, in the house of his servant David. This God who had promised to Abraham and his descendants a destiny of plenty and freedom, untroubled by enemies and without fear, was about to make good on his oath. Though his people may have doubted, denied, and forgotten him, he has remembered them. This destiny has now drawn near in the appearance of the Baptist and still more definitively in the advent of the one whose coming it would be his task to proclaim. My friends, whatever our lot in life, we must be convinced of this. God has remembered us. We may not be able to discern his mindfulness because that which assaults us and confuses us and distracts us and disorients us keeps us from recognizing this. But we have tangible evidence of his memory that cannot elude us. The fellowship of his church, the abiding word of God, and perhaps most graphically, the tokens of bread and wine. For are they not the very body and blood of him who is our mighty salvation? 
Do they not speak of God's personal intervention in time and space to reconcile all things to himself? Do they not, by their very, nat- their, their very mundane and creaturely nature, demonstrate God's participation in the fra- fabric of our world, working to bring order out of chaos and weaving our lives into the tapestry of his unfolding purpose? Now, St. Luke has a word for this unfolding purpose. It is the word salvation. If the first lesson we learn from the Benedictus is that we are a remembered people, the second is that God's remembering of us is what is meant by salvation. Now, Luke has an interest in the theme of salvation that perhaps surpasses that of the other gospel writers. He alone calls Jesus Savior. And it is clear throughout his account of the life of Jesus that salvation includes deliverance, rescue, and victory. He heals a hemorrhaging woman, saying, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He heals a blind man, saying, Receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. To the penitently generous Zacchaeus, he says, Today salvation has come to this house. And all are examples of a remembering, a repairing of the physical body, or a bringing of health and renewal to a converted sinner. But for Luke, salvation is even more profound than this. For it involves the wholeness to which human beings are restored in a sound relation to God, to quote New Testament scholar Joseph Fitzmaier. It is, in fact, the embodiment of the prophet Isaiah's vision, which stood at the core of John's own proclamation. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This, my friends, is the ultimate remembering. The plan of salvation is a restoration of what has been lost to us in the disordered pride of Eden and in every subsequent act of human will that divides us from ourselves, from one another, and from God. God's faithfulness to his word and his covenant means that those who receive his offer of grace have an eternal place in the narrative of salvation that he is writing. And it is with this image that I would like to leave us. You know, in the medieval mind, God was conceived of as an author. And it is from him that all authority is derived. His creative action began with the composition of the universe through his word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke the cosmos into being through the power of his speech. The history of the world, therefore, was thought of as God laying out the events of human history as a novelist, penning characters and creating situations. The tale he constructs is infinitely complex, with seemingly insignificant figures taking on major roles 
while what is often regarded by us as greatness warranting merely a footnote. Now you and I are written into this story. From time to time we may be able to transcend our circumstances and get a sense of the movement of the divine plot. Every once in a while God will write a part for a prophet, assuring us that through the tender mercy of our God the day spring on high hath visited us. But for the most part, we are confused by the senseless succession of human affairs. What could possibly bring meaning out of our dismembered and dismembering experiences? Well, every good Latinist knows that the proper rules of Latin grammar require the verb to come at the end of a sentence. And, this, and in this epic, we know as the human race, God has been piling up nouns and adjectives, particles and adverbs, each one waiting for its moment to become remembered with the words around it through the introduction of the final verb. The verbum caro factum est, the word made flesh. In this week of the first Sunday of Advent, let us take comfort from the fact that God has not forgotten us. He is working out his plan of salvation through the long-promised sending of his Son, whose coming has and will continue to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen.